0: Welcome to The Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and
1: compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, hello, friend. You look amazing today. You See what happens when you subscribe to The Ethics Experts? You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So no brainer to hit that subscribe button and get that uh, bonus greeting on the next episode. I'm here with my man, uh, Hassani X. How you doing, man? I am good, man. How are you? Good. Super excited to get you on. You are the chief of story. You're an advisor. You're an investor. You're someone I've followed on LinkedIn for a long time. Learned a lot from. I've stolen a bunch of your lines and your uh, <laughs> your uh, your your video ideas. So really happy to get you on and kind of pick your brain a little bit.
0: Man, I love to be here. So I, I tell people anytime I get to run my mouth, I'm there. So, yeah. Yeah. You're a yeah. natural. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, I'd love to just dive into hear a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are now. At some point, you were a young boy. Now you're an investor, an advisor, and, a, you know, really kind of a thought leader and an expert in this game. What was that? What was that trip like?
0: Yeah, it was, it was kind of wild, you know, and, and uh, you know, I grew up in Oakland, California. I don't know if anybody, if you're familiar with it, pretty tough place growing up during the 80s height of the crap academic. To give you context, my high school started with 500 freshmen, only about 38 of us graduated. Mm. Like it was, it was crazy, but I made it out. Uh, First person in my family, go to college, get an Ivy League degree, graduate, start my business and all is good. Um, And I'm building businesses for you. Consulting is my first company, like my official company. And we're crushing it in Los Angeles, helping companies to grow through our modeling. And then I get a phone call one day. My mom is like, You know, they killed him. They killed him. She's hollering and screaming. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, your brother. He's dead. Yeah. And and that was the pivot point for me, because at his eulogy. When I was giving his eulogy, one of the thoughts that just kept pumping into my brain was our last conversation where he told me I wasn't the big brother he needed me to be. Mm. And at the time, I told him, Nick, hey, BS, we grew up in the same place. I know it's tough, but I did the right things. You didn't. Same mom, same dad, same environment, same schools. You decided to do the things that you did, not on me. But it wasn't until giving his eulogy that I really got it. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where stuff just slaps up against your face and you finally get where you've been messing up. You see, I had been punting on leadership. All things leadership, I punted on. Whether it was being captain of the football team, no thank you. Student body president, no thank you. Being a big brother, just look at me, I'm doing right it's not on me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, where did this come from? There was this fear, this fear to lead. I do what I take, need to do to succeed. But when it came to leading, I didn't want any parts with it. So that was a transition point for me, Nick, where I I went from building businesses to building people by diving into myself Mm. to help myself to feel worthy of actually leading people. Every fear that I said I had, I would attack. So I became a professional fighter and I was fighting in a cage back in 2004 when it was still illegal in 48 states, wow. jumping out of airplanes because I'm scared of heights, going to swim with whale sharks because I'm scared of the ocean. Any fear that I felt I attacked yeah. and I started to transform my life, became a better father, better husband. My body changed and shifted. And all the businesses that I was building, people started asking me, well, I noticed these other things. How are you doing that? Your kids are so well mannered. Your your relationship is so tight. Your, your your business is booming. Like, how do you balance all of that and make it work? You know, fast forward, long story long. Um, I transitioned from building businesses to building people, and that's where I founded Rise of a Leader. And you know, X from Oakland, California, little ghetto boy, was now consulting publicly traded companies on how to build their leaders and how to create culture. Um, that was about 10 years ago. And now my latest kind of epiphany and jump in building businesses and people for the last 20 years is now I'm advising and investing in those companies and mm-hmm. building them for something that I can pass on to my kids. Um, and and it's, a, it's been an exciting ride and I feel like I'm a baby in all of it. So I haven't arrived yet. I still got lots to do. So but I'm excited about how far I've come.
1: What a, uh, what a powerful story. Um, that epiphany moment must've been so visceral to be giving your brother's eulogy and realize that there was some truth or some nugget of truth in what, you know, in that, that conversation that you referenced and you said, Hey, I punted on leadership. What, like, what was the nature of that fear? What, what was that sort of firewall or that blockage that, that was preventing you from like jumping out of the plane, so to speak in the leadership department? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Let me let me relay it to your audience because you know we've worked with compliance lines, so we understand in the risk management space. You know just how important what you do is. Yep. In terms of feeding the culture, in terms of keeping people straight, in terms of taking care of your best asset, you know it. You can feel how important that is. But when you sit at that table with all the other parts of the company, from operations to other executives. What do people in that space do? We tend to shrink mm-hmm. because we don't feel like that thing is as important, and that our voice is worthy of being heard at that table. Right. Because we're the soft stuff. We're all the things that don't really matter that don't drive the bottom line. So we 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 shrink. Right. To a fraction of who we are. That's what it felt like. I didn't believe that I was worthy of leading others to, to actually tell them, I know what's best, or I believe I can help you to get there. I didn't feel that confident in myself. So I shrunk and I did everything I could to help myself succeed. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of people in the compliance space, we do enough to check the boxes, but we won't fight to say, this is what we need to be doing because what we don't feel like we're worthy. Right. And, 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 and it's not all our fault because we a lot of the stuff outside of us is telling us, listen, you're the little kid, sit at the little kids table. Right. These are grown folks talking. Right. Right. So so it, that's what it, that's what it felt like. And I think that visceral experience of becoming conscious of it. Mm-hmm. You have two choices, face it and step up or shrink. Right. And that's what that morality and ethics that 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 you're big on comes to play. You either are going to bow out and be a good boy and girl and toe the line, mm-hmm. or you're going to step up and do something phenomenal.
1: You know, it's interesting um, as you're telling that story. I was kind of struck with this image of, you know, there's this sphere around us of what we consider our world, and within that sphere, you do feel worthy because I mean, you're a high performing guy before you had this sort of leadership epiphany, right? Uh, you're yeah. a high performing guy, and within that sphere. You, you were worthy to sort of speak the truth in there and you know speak the truth into that world so to speak <clears throat> and it wasn't until that moment of uh, that that epiphany moment as we said where it's like the the size of that sphere expanded out to the actual world and you realize that you are worthy to speak it in in into that and you are you are worthy to sort of puff your chest out and sort of own that world right um, and I think it's a really power <clears throat> excuse me sorry uh, it's a real powerful thing t- to to expand that out, particularly when, like, there's some truth in it being your duty to do it.
0: Mm, like, yeah, yeah. you
1: earned that, right? Like, uh, you being that leader, or you, you know, you shifting your focus from building businesses to building people, like, you've obviously been very successful at it, and I'm sure you had your own little J-curve as you sort of learned it, but my point is, you were particularly set up to do that given your background and who you are and how you're wired and what your spirit is and, and, and so forth. And I think there's an interesting corollary for a lot of the folks who listen to this, where it's your duty to do those things. Like, just because yeah. you haven't been at the grown folks table doesn't mean that you don't deserve to be there. You have to pull your seat up to it, but it's your duty. There, there's nobody else in the organization who's better put uh, or in a better position to, to own that integrity thing or own that ethics yeah. thing or own, own that, that culture piece. Yeah.
0: Well, one thing I want to add here, because I think this can be lost yeah. in what we're talking about the idea that you feel you're worthy coincides with you actually sitting in the grown folks table and inserting yourself. I think it's almost the opposite. You convince yourself that you have some value and you take a leap of faith and right. jump into it. And, and because you've done your work and because you've been showing up consistently and with intensity in your own space, you will figure out what needs to be done along the way. And and I think it's the waiting until you're perfectly secure that keeps us small. That's right. Right. We wait until we're perfectly secure and we've mitigated all risk. Right. Right. We've mitigated risk and we think that's when we need to step into it. But is that really duty, responsibility, morality and ethic if there is any risk? Yeah, exactly. Like, like, like really think about it. No risk means that this isn't something that warrants growth. Correct. So you will be scared. You will be uncertain. You will be on shaky ground and that's okay. And I think that's the battle Right. is, is being okay with not being a hundred percent certain of what comes next, but being okay with the idea that you'll figure it out. That's the key
1: I kept picturing you know a little baby bird in the nest and when they jump out of that nest the first time they haven't flown before right yeah they don't Whoa. jump out and all fall to the ground and you know <laughs> die and break their bones right like most of them jump out and they can fly because they've done the work so to speak their bodies have grown those feathers they've grown those wings and once they jump out they figure it out that leap of faith is while scary uh, or while it can be scary is once you take the leap you always look back on it and you're like wow I was really hyping that up. And it's also kind of like, well, you know, I need to wait to have kids. I need to have more money and I need to have be more secure in my career and blah, blah, blah. Well, before you know it, you're going to be 45 and no kids. Like when's the right time to have kids? It's probably sooner, a lot sooner than you think. Just like when's the right time for me to pull my chair up to the grown folks table? That's a lot sooner than you think. you got to take that leap. And once you take it, you can see it's not really that far of a way down. Because to your point, there's a lot of good work that's already been done. There's a lot of skills that have been built. There's a lot of sort of inherent ethos that the world needs you to live out. You just have to push it out, you know
0: yeah. Yeah. And, and and I think that's key. Uh, one key thing here is is the idea of we wait for security. We wait for things to be okay before we leap. Mm-hmm. And we wonder why we don't feel this sense of fulfillment. Like a lot of people in our space <laughs> yeah. are successful. Good point. They're successful in their own right. Even though they're living well below their potential, they're quote unquote successful, but they're not happy and fulfilled. And the question I always ask clients is, well, why? And it comes down to this. Fulfillment, the irony of fulfillment is that it requires you to become empty. Mm. That means empty of your gifts. You've given your gifts in such a way that you'll become empty. Yeah. And when you give your gifts in that way, you have to push, fight, struggle, go into unknown territory yeah. and waters and plant a flag. Amazing. Nothing short of that is going to give you fulfillment. Right. So if you constantly squelch, shrink, fall short, play it safe, you can be successful. You can even find fleeting happiness, but you will not find fulfillment.
1: Yeah. It's almost like, uh, you know, if you monetarily, if you live above your means, you're never going to be happy. And like, in terms of life, if you're living below your means of potential or living below your means of, of impact, you're never going to reach that fulfillment. I mean, it's a really phenomenal thing. You have to empty, you have to empty it out, which sometimes seems uh, unsafe. And it seems like, You know, you're riding on the wire or whatever, but yeah, unless you're stretching yourself and unless you're doing those new things, you're not going to, uh, to reach that fulfillment. But you know what, you know, what's kind of interesting, like think back when your kids were little, kids live in that space, you know, like, uh, you know, when a baby starts to try to walk, they have no business walking. They have no idea what they're doing (laughs) but they're constantly in that space. And that's how that's, again, maybe I'm coming full circle to what you're saying. Only then is that, that sort of perpetual growth even possible, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's not about the security of each step that right. they're seeking. It's about what's on the other side. If they finally do nail it. I am I, cla- I got three kids, so I watched them all. They, they, they start crawling and pulling themselves up, not for the sake of wanting to just do it for the sake of. There's something on top of that table right. that looks pretty interesting. And then they reach a point where they can, if I walk there, I can get it faster. Like Mm -hmm. there's always something there. So that's the idea of having a purpose, Mm -hmm. having a sense and a calling and a why, something that you can look at, that you can materially see, Mm -hmm. visualize, connect to mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And now you lean on that as the fuel to pull you Mm -hmm. into that next scary step. If it's nothing there that you want and you can see and you can taste and you can feel, why why risk it? Yeah. Why why put yourself on the line, play yeah. it safe? So 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 figuring that out for yourself is monumentally important. What is it all really about for you and what matters? And now, once that becomes your true North Star, and this is a scary thing too. Yeah, some people can figure out what their North Star is and turn away from it every single day. Yeah, And they live a torturous life like like the courage is in facing that what is for you and taking a step toward it each and every day.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I'd like to say nobody just randomly wanders to the top of a mountain. You know what I'm saying? You have to like <laughs> you have to be looking at yeah. the top and you're going to climb that thing. Um, but how tragic is that? I mean, what you just described is even more tragic than the person who never even like can bring themselves to try to find that purpose to know it at some level to see it and to turn away from that repeatedly uh, is to your point. I think that's the right word torturous. What do you think that fear is, is rooted in for people who are really either too scared to try to even articulate or find what that purpose is and begin pursuing it or those who have kind of found it or they probably know deep down in their heart of hearts what it is yet they turn away from it all the all the time. What's that fear that that prevents them you think?
0: Yeah, I think there are a multitude of stories we tell ourselves that we end up adopting and believing, right, Um, that become our lens by which we see the world. But I think if you would say, if I had to pick one as a root cause, it's our own sense of worthiness. How worthy do we feel of that thing we're pursuing? How worthy do we feel we are of even working toward it? The fear of failing and that thing not reaching it, confirming that we are who we think we are less yeah. than who we thought we could, who, less than worthy of that thing. And I can't say I've perfectly conquered those monsters. Mm-hmm. And it's and that's the I think the oxymoron in all of this. It's not about per, it's not about conquering all of those monsters. It's about waking up each day and facing them. Right. When lose or draw, I, I showed up to battle that thing. Uh, and and and, and a, a quick story here when I my first kind of conceptualization of this idea happened when I was five years old and you know I had one of those old school moms you got to go to bed at eight o'clock in the evening I don't care what's going on mm-hmm. and the night be- the day before I saw the Incredible Hulk for the first time with Lou Ferrigno yeah and he scared the crap out of me so I had a nightmare and I didn't want to go to sleep my mom was like no get in the bed so I get in the bed And I feel something behind me, Nick, and I'm panicking, like five years old, (laughs) scared to death. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to kill me. But I said to myself, if he can't see me, he can't get me. So I got under the covers and I didn't move. If he can't see me, he can't get me. If he can't see me, he can't get me. I said that to myself, Nick, at least 10,000 times through the entire night until 8 a.m. the next morning. That was my mantra. Wow. I didn't didn't move. I didn't. (laughs) That was the right. My mom comes in and it was like, hey, you're usually up eating your cereal in front of the TV. What's going on? I pop up. The first thing I thought was, where were you? That was the first thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing I thought was, holy shit, he didn't kill me.
1: Yeah, your strategy worked.
0: Yeah, he didn't kill me. (laughs) Yeah. And then I turned around and it was my pillow.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: So I got off the bed, went and got my cornflakes. Sat in front of that floor model TV, turned it on, and Incredible Hulk was on. And I watched it every day from then on. Not scared of it anymore. Yes. Here's the thing. I didn't defeat it. I just survived right. until I could turn around and see what was really going on. And it was my damn pillow. Yeah. And I think it's that realization. You don't have to show up and crush it. you just got to show up.
1: Yeah, you just have, and to, you just have to survive. That's it.
0: Yeah, that's it. And you will learn something. You will grow. You will figure out the key to that lock. You will come up with an epiphany that will allow you to say, hmm, this isn't that bad. And only exposure to this hidden, mysterious Mm -hmm. thing can give you that. But we wait to feel that way before we jump, and it
1: just doesn't work that way. Right. It's so counterintuitive. It's like such a paradox. It's like the paradox of achievement or the paradox of you hitting your true potential you have to reframe what what a failure looks like, or reframe you know what what that fear is. Um, yeah. And you know, you said something. It. I mean, there's you know, you obviously have a way with words, and um, but you just said something that I thought was uh, pretty profound. Um. You know, simply overcoming the fear, or simply showing up there, um, and simply showing up is you know ninety percent of the battle. And recognizing that our fear of uh, moving forward is really rooted in like this fear of not being worthy. Like to your point, the next layer up, which you hear people talk about all the time, is like the fear of failure. Well, mm-hmm. the fear of failure is due to some ego bruise that's that could potentially come that to your point reconfirms that hey, I might, you know, what if I am this person I fear that I am? Or what if I'm not yeah, the person yeah. I hope I am? Right. Like those, yeah, are, those yeah. are those can be crippling things. And Life goes by quick, man. Like you blink your I, eyes and you're older and you blink your eyes and you're on your deathbed and you, you probably have a ton yeah. of, of re- regrets. I, you know, the thing I was trying to get to was just that like failure is not really that permanent. We, th- by its nature, we think that like there's a permanence to it and it's a defining thing and it doesn't have to be right. If yeah. you try to pull your chair up to the grown folks table and you get swatted down, well, okay, w- try again next week. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Keep trying. Well, yeah. Uh,
0: let me answer something here that that if this is my go-to, kind of. I think the thing that saved me from surviving and coming out of a very harsh environment and all the things I went through, tragedy and, and the whole nine. It's this one thing: it's being able to reframe the story. When when you pull up to that table and you get swatted, you're going. Your mind is going to frame up a story that helps to protect you mm-hmm. from pain. But it's up to you as the author to rewrite and reframe that story in such a way right. that it's empowering. Right. I'll share one more, one more story here. When I was nine, I went to my aunt's house for the summer, and she was the rich aunt. She had a a, a pool in San Diego, and you know, us little ghetto kids and all to swim. So all us little kids stayed on the 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 kitty end in the side of the pool. So I had this hot Wheels, my favorite hot wheels. I don't know if you're old enough to have played with Hot yeah, yeah. Wheels back in the day, but I had my favorite one. And I was playing with it on the edge of the pool, and I threw it between my legs, and it rolled into the deep end. Uh-oh. My dad came running up behind me. He was like, "Go get it!" And I'm like, "What? Go get it!" And before I knew it, he picked me up and threw me in the deep end. Nick, I, but I felt my life like flash before <laughs> me, going under, gargling water. I'm screaming and hollering, and da da da. But I make my way to the edge of the pool the grace of God. I don't know how. Pull myself out, crying and hollering. My dad says, come here. I'm scared to death of my dad. He is the, the biggest ultimate monster in the world. So I'm screaming and hollering. I, run, I walk over to him. What does he do? Picks me up and throws me in again. <laughs> this goes on about six, seven, eight times before my mom says, hey, Bernard, leave that boy alone. Nick, afterwards, I'm on the side of the house, my aunt's house, crying my eyes out. Similar to the Incredible Hulk story, I go, wait a minute. I didn't die. Wait a minute. I was just in the deep end. 10 minutes later, I'm the only little kid playing in the deep end of the pool. Mm -hmm. It's being able to reframe what happens to you Mm -hmm. that allows you to stay in the game and to try again. It's not overcoming fear. It's not about overcoming fear. I got fears. It's about reframing. That's right. So I can stay active until I figure out how to face that thing. Because here's one key thing, and and I think it's important. When we rehearse our drama, I meaning that could have been potentially traumatic for me. It becomes trauma. Like you can't, you, something doesn't traumatize you until you rehearse the drama of that situation, the story over and over and over and over again. That's right. My my, my dad recently passed away about a few weeks ago, maybe about a month ago now. And my, I told this story about being thrown in a pool. My brother, younger than me, has a similar story. His, my uncle did it to him. That must have been a family thing. Like I don't know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but he still to this day is scared of water. Interesting. He, he, to him, he's traumatized by that. He never reframed that he survived it.
1: So t- almost thirty years, he's still suffering from what happened to him. Um. Very interesting. That's super interesting that that ability to reframe a story can have such a massive impact and reliving massive reliving that drama turns into trauma. I love that uh, connection. Um, Stories have such an interesting uh, power on us as humans, I think, because at some level, our uh, minds can't tell on a subconscious level. They can't tell the difference between an actual experience and something that's happening in our minds, right? Like the classic yeah. example is when uh, your wife is edgy with you in the morning and it's because you were such a jerk to her in the dream that she just woke up from. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But there's a, there's a famous story about a guy. Um, he was in, I think he, I think he was in the Korean War and uh, he got caught. He was a POW, and they put him in those hot boxes. And so everyone around him was going nuts, and they were going crazy, and they were asking to be killed and all that kind of stuff. And he was like, "I'm going to survive this." And the way that he figured out to survive it, he loved golf. He sucked at golf, but he loved golf. So every day in the hot box, he was just in his mind envisioning, you know, going to the golf course. And he would, you know, he would golf three rounds per day. But he would, he would literally visualize every single aspect of waking up, shaving, getting in the car, wind in his hair you know, paying for his round, walk, every single aspect of it, teeing up, taking his breath, and just crushing the ball. And, of course, in his dream, in his visualization, every shot was a perfect shot. And, again, he, this <laughs> guy never even broke 100, you know what I'm saying, before he got captured, uh, you know, in the war. Long story short, he gets broken out um, or he breaks out or they get released, he comes back home, there's all the hoopla, the ticker tape parade. The first thing he yeah. does is he wants to go golfing. Would you believe he hit, like, a 73? Like, he got... 10 times better at golfing without even pick, picking up a stick because his body remembered all those rounds and he built yeah. that, that muscle memory. So that, that's, that's a stupid story that speaks to this power that reliving that stuff in your mind can have and create that trauma. But also it speaks to this power that we have to fix the, fix the freaking frame on the wall, change that. Yeah. And yes. uh, look at it differently. <laughs> I mean, for you to have that epiphany at nine, super powerful. What do you think that came from from you? Why did you have that experience and your brother had a different one? Again, same parents, same background, same what, whatever. What is yeah, that, yeah. that that reframe muscle in you?
0: I often ask that question, and I think it just came comes down to um, I was lucky. I'm not better than or figured something out. I just luckily, or at least I just don't remember where it came from. Maybe it was just I'm so not good with dealing with pain that I have to figure out a way to figure Uh out to reorient myself towards what comes next for me. Um, But fortunately, whether you're wired that way or pain push you to be that way, I have taught hundreds if not thousands of others to think that way, simply reframe. And that's the key skill. It keeps you in the game, consistency, compound interest. It's doing a thing over and over and over again that creates expertise. It's the stories we tell ourselves over and over again that becomes an habitualized way of thinking, feeling, and ultimately doing. Right. And like you said, you know, stories are nothing but the brain's way of creating an algorithm to access thoughts, feelings, and then a programmed way to act. Got it. Right. It's just an algorithm, That's a right. shortcut. And if you have been practice drilling and rehearsing a shitty shortcut, well, you're going to get shitty results. Right. But if I practice, drill, and rehearse a story that's in alignment with who I want to be, yep. who I can be, where I want to go, I am far more likely to show up, like you said, and to hit a better golf game. Because the mind can't tell the difference between imagined and what's real. Right. And we can insert, the only creature on this planet that can do that, the narrative that we want right. to insert. And all you got to do is keep practicing and rehearsing it. And you have the keys.
1: Yeah. And you have to hold on to that picture and you have to, again, there's going to be this conflict in (laughs) your mind to say, well, do I even deserve to have this picture on my wall? Well, no, you do deserve it and you, and you do deserve to frame it how you want and you do deserve to keep running at it. But to your point, we're surrounded by a bunch of negative stories and we're surrounded by a bunch of, uh, negative self-talk and we, we live in this kind of imposter syndrome. These are all normal things. You know, when I first heard about imposter syndrome, I was like, "Oh." Everyone feels that way. Amazing. You know what I'm saying? It's just me. I thought it was just me. <laughs> well, there's this story that, um, I've told a couple of times, but, um, there was this, this person that I really looked up to a lot and they were, you know, they were like the consummate business person. They ran a bunch of businesses and, uh, they just seemed like this great leader. They had it so far, you know, they, they totally had it together. And I always felt like I didn't uh, know anything and, you know, that I had no business being here, and anyway, so he was in front. It was some some talk, and he was in front of like literally thousands of people. And somebody asked him something along those lines, like, "How are you, this this person? Where does your confidence come from?" And all that stuff. And he was just like, "I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm figuring it out as I go. Uh, I'm you know I'm nervous before things. I feel like I shouldn't be here and stuff like that." And I was just like, "Oh, well." I, I can, oh, I, can I can do that. I don't know what I'm doing here, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's very yep. freeing. It's to your point. It's, it's this really freeing thing. If you can grab hold of it, it's not, it's not scarier. It's, it, it's more grounding. It's more, it's more powerful to recognize that, Hey, I can actually architect this thing.
0: Yeah. And, some, yeah. and something
1: my dad used to say, which I didn't understand. And maybe I still don't, but he said, be the hero of your dreams. You can reinvent yourself at any point in time. And when I was young and I heard that, I was just like, I'm, I'm not really sure what that means. And I think some people have like a, a caricature of this advice, which is fake it till you make it. Um, and maybe there's some truth and some value in there, but you can literally reinvent yourself and you can really act as if. And, you, and if you act as if enough, you can become that person. I mean, a great example yeah. is uh, Andrew Dice Clay. He's Jewish. <laughs> He's not even <laughs> Italian. Okay, I, He might not mm-hmm. even be from Brooklyn, but that shtick <laughs> became who he is now. You know what I'm saying?
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. I, a, a few things there. Oh, my God. First, I would say the whole fake it until you make it. I try to say face it until you make it because faking it is admitting that you're lying to yourself on Mm -hmm. some level and you're trying to portray something and invariably you will fall short. And that's what the mind will antagonize and attack. See, you're not that. But if I say I face it until I make it, I always have the opportunity to face it, win, lose or draw to put myself in that position and to allow the experience to edify my growth going forward. So I'm always able to take my next step in pure confidence and faith. Face it until you make it. Going back to the story side of it, I think there, there, there are a, a, a couple of things to consider when you, when you talked about the idea of, um uh, 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 what would you say? I lost the thought. Anyway, two th- two things to consider here. Like, like, that story that you tell yourself is going to govern how you think, feel, and what you ultimately do. Right. And it's, it's just about making sure you practice, drill, and rehearse it. Mm-hmm. But here's where people fall off. They think that you do it once and it's going to stick. You know, <laughs> I, I, I go read this book and I feel good. I go work out once. And then the next day, I got all these thoughts of how I'm not this and I'm not this and I'm not this. Dude, you had 30 years of practicing this other story. Yeah, right. And your mind is hardwired to keep you safe. It, gives, it doesn't give a shit about how successful you are. Right. It wants to keep you safe. And safety means doing the same things that you've always been doing, playing right. short, right. conserving. So, so, So you got to understand that there are going to be a thousand things that pop into your awareness that tell you no or don't. Right. And they're going to be loud. The story of yes is going to be just a whisper. And 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 and, and the, the thing I tell people is you don't need a thousand and one yeses to combat those thousand no's. You need one. Right. And you just decide to believe it. That's right. Doesn't matter if it's real or fake. Hey, I, I go work out every day and, and, and I get a thousand reasons why I don't want to go work out. But then I wake up and say, man, it's seven on one on a Sunday that's a good reason to work out. Yeah. Let's do that. Right. <laughs> like, 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 it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be real. It, you solidify that. Yes. as to why you're going to do it. And you hold that story and put yourself into momentum. You won't feel like it until you get done with the third rep, fifth rep, third set. And now you're like, okay, this was a good idea. So, so, so know that the, the idea of no and playing safe is always going to be a louder story ranging in your head you got to find one to stick to practice to that put yourself into momentum face it and ultimately you'll keep on chipping away until that becomes a habitual thought pattern
1: so um i have this theory that um we think that we are these logical beings we think that we're these rational beings and <clears> we take <throat> these inputs of data points and they run through our our mental algorithms and we spit out ones and zeros and we come to the right answer and we're logic things um in my experience it's really that we're Kind of emotional things, we're emotional beings, emotional bags of meat, or whatever, and we come to our decisions, and then we backfill those with logic because we want to decrease yeah. sort of logical dissonance in our mind. So that's how a lot of decision making happens. But what you just talked about is sort of harnessing that same dy- dynamic, and from a from a, a changing ourselves perspective, and saying I'm going to hold on to that yes, and then I'm going to backfill it because if 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 you're not holding on to that to that anchor point of what you want to go toward that new vision of yourself, that yes, that I'm going to work out every day, then you're going to fall into the natural pattern of, well, I have a bunch of reasons to your point. Self-preservation in our minds going to pop up a bunch of reasons why. Well, it is it is Sunday and it's pretty early to go to the <laughs> gym or whatever all those rationalizations are. And that that end goal of a yes is uh, it evaporates away. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. And, and if you think about what we're talking about, why it takes more than one new uh, data point to sort of change this 30 years of habit, like you're talking about, it's kind of like moving a road in our minds, uh, the stories that we tell ourselves and uh, in our thought patterns and so forth, they actually have a manifestation in the physical world in that there are like literal connections in our mind being made. There are literal neural pathways being worn down. So we have to kind of move a road. If you've ever seen a field that like people have just walked through over a long time and there's like a little path worn through it. Well, it's going to take some time to your point for a new path to be worn. You have to stop walking on that old path and you have to walk enough on this new path for it to just naturally, you know, pop, pop out of of, of the grass. You know what I mean?
0: hundred percent, hundred percent. I tell people there are four levels to something manifesting or solidifying itself as a habitual pattern. It's the MEPs map, mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual. Mentally, you can change in a, in a heartbeat in in terms of how you think emotionally you can change your emotions in a heartbeat. Right. But that change, it's ephemeral, right? The slate gets wiped clean after that moment. Right. But the only thing that solidifies a mental and emotional shift is when it happens physically and spiritually. Mm. So for example, I want to, you know, let's, let's take going to work out. Okay. I mentally feel inspired. I'm mentally in it. I'm emotionally there. I go and do the workout. The physical transformation, like you said, takes time. Mm -hmm. Physical manifestation or creation takes time. I don't care how we feel about it. To put these physical objects into play takes time. The new neural pathways being built in your brain, which are physical, the physical objects Mm -hmm. that we're seeking to build takes time. There's a component of time. Spiritual is when those physical objects not only are built, but they then imbue upon them something bigger and grander than those objects of unto themselves. Mm. So, I may be going to the gym and building muscle, which is a physical adaptation, but a spiritual one would be where that physical adaptation starts to become how I think and see the world. Yeah. It's imbuing itself beyond the physical. I start to eat more healthy, I start to think more healthy, I start to feel more healthy. I start to remove toxic people from my my right. space who aren't healthy to me. I'm starting to build a world around this physical component that mirrors the idea and ethic. That's a spiritual transformation, which takes even longer. Right. The place that we play at is mental and emotional. We, we, we get the, the, the instantaneous kind of hype. We use it. And then we expect it to be there tomorrow. Right. It's not, you have to refuel the mental and emotional space to give you the consistency to build the physical space, to give you then the the, the foundation to build a right. spiritual space. Right. Because once it becomes spiritual, it's locked in. It's foundational. It's you. You're a living, breathing embodiment of this thing. Um, not to go too deep on it, but no, those are the four levels no, in which I think about it.
1: That's a great. Uh, that's a great picture you painted, and you know, breaking it down that way. I mean, what we're talking about is sort of a sustainable change that's going to have like, you know, a life changing impact potentially on your existence. Right. Um, And sometimes it can feel so, so big. But what you just did is you just kind of boiled it down to say, like, if you can keep that mental and that emotional dialed in and just recognize that you're going to have to do a thousand repetitions of that. But also, on the other hand, understand that that's probably the easiest one to affect. And the easiest one to influence. Just understand that you have to refresh that every day, just like you have to take a shower every single day. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Because showers work, but you have to do them daily. You have to yeah. check your mind space every day. But to your point, if you're doing that, well, then the physical is going to follow on, and in, and from that, nat- naturally, that spiritual broader broader impact um, is just going to be the natural extension. That's just the nat- right. the natural right. next ripple of that you know rock thrown in the pool. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And and thank you for saying that. I always learn something every time I mention something, you said sustainable. If you want to, some people, Hey, when we start talking about spiritual, they like, ah, they tune out. Well, let's just replace that S with sustainable. There you go. Meaning that the environment and the conditions that are beyond the physical object are now able to sustain that thing without sustainability, the physical will decay Mm -hmm. and the physical will decay. The mental and emotional will be harder to fuel going back. So, Spiritual or sustainable, same thing. It's an S. I love it. I'm going to use that from now on. Thank
1: you. (laughs) No, good. I'm glad I could help. Um, So, I mean, at some level, we're kind of talking about agency. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, being in the passenger seat of your life or gripping that steering wheel and actually driving it. And, you know, people talk about that from the fixed mentality to the growth mentality. But at the core of all these different frameworks is this agency to say, like, I can affect the world, I can push something, and that's going to move around in the world. And that fear of of agency, I don't know if it's a fear of agency because we all have agency to some degree. I mean, we all we all have physical bodies. Uh, we exist in a sort of a physical plane, or at least that it seems that way that uh, we can affect. Um, but it's always puzzled me. Um, how people sort of waffle with their agency in different like spheres, in different realms. Yeah. Like someone's like, yeah. you know, has super high agency over here and then they step over here and you're just like, whoa, what happened? Like, It's like they're walking on a frozen lake or something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Something that you think would translate so easily, there's some blockage to that agency that's kind of puzzling. Have you seen that in your life? Or, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I think it's a couple of things. Um, One I, one is is the idea that we're hardwired especially in our social dynamic to feel unshaky and unworthy. Mm -hmm. And here's what I mean by that. We acquire skills and habits and we start to do things very easily and naturally. Each of us have gifts, things that we do easily and other people struggle with. Right. Right. But here's the irony, all the things that we have become masters at that we do easily, we punt on as being important. We look outside of ourselves and we're looking to acquire skills and, and, and and the ability in an area that we suck at. And and then someone else is looking at us saying, Well, you're awesome over there. You're like, no, that's nothing. Right. That's nothing. You take you take so, all that for granted, you know? Yeah, all of it is taken for granted. Totally. So we're we're playing to highlight and uphold our weaknesses. It's like having let's say LeBron James on your team, but you're paying attention to the bench. Like, like the brain, we're hardwired to do that. Mm -hmm. Instead of paying attention to where we're strong, we will always have weaknesses. But one of the things I think in terms of that transferability of agency in these areas, we may not be as great, but agency means being able to show up and know that we can impact outcomes. Exactly. Right. We can improve and grow. I think the distinction is that we in an area that we're weak, we don't have enough reps to believe that we can change our conditions. So I'll give you the story. I walk into an organization, and we're doing a training with like 50 people on a team, um, and we're trying to help each member of the team to feel important that they do have agency. Mm -hmm. So we go around the room, and everyone's in a circle, and I say, okay, everybody count, one, two, and everyone raises their hand, two, three, four. I say, okay, that's the first time through. The second time through, I says, I want you to say it in such a way that you impact the person who comes next. So invariably, people go, one, and then two, and then three, right? And then four. But they're not quite sure they can impact people. By the time it gets to halfway through the room, it starts to escalate because we can see we're starting to have agency and influencing. Then I say, stop, 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 stop. You all are holding back. Let me... Go into the room, so I put myself like a quarter through the room. So it's like one, two, three, four, five. And it comes to me, I'm like motherfucking six, and I jump off the the the, <laughs> the the chair, and I'm like doing a King Kong dance, and I'm yelling six. Then the next person goes, what does he have to do? Top it. He, he yeah, he has <laughs> to top it. right So he does it, and then she does it, and then by the time it gets to the last person in the room. My little old thing done way down here, yeah, has impacted everybody. Right. But I'll never see her. I'll never see her at the end and how I impacted her. I'll never see it. But we just have to know that we do have that type of agency and control and impact.
1: Wow. That's a pretty powerful uh mechanism or activity. You know what I'm saying? Where'd you where, yeah. where'd you come up with that? That's that's gen- that's genius.
0: Uh I made it up.
1: See. See? I got some wild
0: stories. That, There's I got more some wild stories. Yeah, you. you just
1: do some. I got That's some.
0: All. Give me some more. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 you're in the compliance space, which is a hop, skip, and jump to the HR
1: space. Yep.
0: I have given HR departments hell in terms of when I come in to consult these companies when I was younger. I didn't know any better, but I was like, I'm going to try it. So I'm going to give you one. I was working with a team, public traded company, and, and they had these silos, huge beef. Yeah, And and each of these people were important on the team. If they missed a trade or something like that, it could cost the organization millions of dollars, yep. right? And But they couldn't fire them because these people had these esoteric knowledge. They're like, we got to make it work. Mm-hmm. Six leaders on the team, about 30 other subordinates around. So I line up the leaders. I'm like, look, we have to share our stories and be truthful and honest about what's going on. We're getting nowhere, nowhere. Like everyone's stonewalling, no one's participating. So I tell my assistant, all right, I meditate first, that's my thing. I sit down, I quiet myself, and I go, I want to see these people come through, like shift. And I get an idea and I try it real time. I never did it before, but I was like, forget it. Go to the Walmart, go get some balloons. She comes back, we fill them up, water balloons. I give all of the balloons to the 30, to the 30 team members, and we're in a half circle. The leaders are up front. I say, we're in the Bible belt. I said, You're gonna stone your leaders. If they don't tell the truth. Amazing. The lady, the HR lady in the back was like, oh, she, she starts calling people. I was like, yeah. whatever.
1: Yeah. Like, we're, right? we're going. We're going. Yeah. <laughs>
0: we're going? going to do this. <laughs> the, the first and they're blindfolded. Oh, the leaders are blindfolded. Okay. Up front. Six of them. The first one goes. And for the first time, he's telling the truth. Wow. How he feels sure. Where the Second one goes. Third one goes. The sixth leader who was the top leader was like, I don't feel like I did anything. Tell you the truth. I've been showing up. This lady, because and, and I'm egging them on. I'm saying, don't throw nothing, don't stone them unless they deserve it. And each person, yeah. I'm hyping it up. This lady jumps up, she throws a balloon at him full force, <laughs> hits him in his chest, he falls over. The balloons don't bust because we couldn't find water balloons because so we use big balloons. Yeah, yeah. So he didn't bust. She starts grabbing balloons from the other people and throwing <laughs> them at him while he's on the ground. Amazing. It's chaos. The HR lady is like, we have to stop this. I was like, all right, all right, all right, calm down. Why did you do that? Because he just da, 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 da. and I was like, well, why? Da, da, da. It finally came out. He had replaced her mentor mm. and her mentor was her father figure. Six years ago, wow. her father died. And when that guy came in, he was her father figure. And 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 from that moment, and by the way, the leader cursed me out afterwards in private. Really? He was like, I can't believe you did that. I was unprofessional. Da, 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 da. Right. Well, it, worked. Uh, it and, worked. And I was like, I was like, dude, I promise you it's going to be, get better. I just felt it was. Yeah, it's absolutely going to get better. Uh, three weeks later, you know, I was fired at first. Sure. But three weeks later, he comes back. He says, dude, totally new environment. All the walls have come tumbling right. down. I take that lady to lunch every week and I now mentor her. People are communicating and connecting. Exactly. Like, 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 like it was that level of truth and transparency and allowing it to come out that helped those walls to, to become tumbling totally. down and for people to now connect um well you can now go ahead. I, I didn't know it was going to work but i felt it and i did it yeah and hopefully man. and luckily it did
1: well as you were telling me it, i was just like this is absolutely a great idea I mean, it's it shatters these silos and it breaks, you know, again, just to tie it back. To, you know, we're talking about story so much people like when there's inauthenticity and you don't have the full picture and you don't have all the actual information. There's a lack of transparency. We all do this. You fill in the blank mentally with kind of the worst case scenario. So you had mm-hmm. this room, this half circle, this crescent shape of 30, 30 subordinates looking at their leaders. And it sounds like the first five did a good job of being authentic and talking about their shortcomings. And that, that was confirmatory to a lot of people. And it also, it humanized them to a lot of people where there was no real connection there. So that, that's a, that, that's a tremendously like effective uh, relationship building exercise. Um, But just shattering those stories that we have in place, you know, to the extent, you know, what I found is that to the extent that you've, you know, slotted in a story when you don't have perfect information, those are some of the easiest stories to break. Those, those are mm-hmm. some of the eerie, the easiest like archetypes or frameworks to shatter because like subconsciously we know that there's no real basis for it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So if we can attack those as leaders or as, you know, entrepreneurs or as, you know, whatever... If, if we can attack those and assume that that there's probably a bunch of slotted stories in the minds of the people that we work with, if you can start to attack those things, you can very quickly shatter that and start to build some authentic relationships with folks. And I think this guy calling you back in three weeks is kind of proof to that. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and you can be reactive in that space or you can own it. And and I tell people, if, you know, tactically speaking, you want to be strategic in this. There are three stories that you want to be proactive in communicating in your organization and to the public. Like there's three. The, the first is the customer story where we're talking about the person that we're seeking to interact and engage with. We're selling them something and they're buying it. So in the compliance space, we're selling something to somebody. That's right right? Not in terms of the product, but many times we're selling to our equals and our peers across Mm -hmm. the organization. We have to understand and appreciate their world and tell them a story that positions them as a hero. So many times we come in with our own silo version of what a story should be, when the story really isn't about you. It's about how somebody else can be a hero in their own story. And it's about the customer. So conceptualize what does this person, this, the CFO, what does she need and what is she really, really after? Mm-hmm. And how do I tell a story that positions my ideas or the data I have in such a way that makes it irresistible for her? Mm-hmm. It's not about you. It's about that customer. That's the first story. We always need to be proactive in that. The second story is your founder story, which comes back to why you do what you do. And why people should trust you right the, the getting in the front and being authentic and transparent about your own shortcomings is about the founder owning his or her position and being vulnerable enough to say this is why this is who i am this is right. what i've done but this is why also i care and so many of us want to tell our leadership story our founder story and it's a but it's a resume i've done this i've done this nobody cares no nobody cares what they care about is what experience have you gone through That makes me want to trust you to be a good guide in my story. Right. So, so, so that's the story. And I'll give you an example with a company we work with, a lawyer. It's always a good example. You remember that five second story I put on LinkedIn about the lawyer Mm -hmm. and uh, he, uh, he, he was, he was evicted when he was uh, six and he lost his house and his mom was struggling and he vowed to never allow anybody to come after anybody's reputation uh uh uh, their their uh uh, money or their livelihood well that's his founder story and now he shares that with everybody in his organization and including his clients it's not about his Harvard degree it's not about his accomplishment it's not about the bottom line it's about look I I care about nobody having to go through some money coming after their reputation their livelihood and their uh their money we will fight And it riles the team up, it riles people up, not because of how good of a lawyer he is, but because of why he cares so much about each and every person inside of the organization and the customers.
1: Yeah. And um, people don't care what you do or what you've done. They care care why you've done those things. Yeah. You don't mm-hmm. watch Star Wars for Luke Skywalker. You don't watch it on his behalf. You watch it for yourself. And yeah. you put yourself in the picture and you trust him and you're going through those things with him. It's not a resume of what he's done. It's, it's, it's a journey and bringing people along that journey and providing those, those guideposts of those whys or those, of those experiences that led to that foundation. That's a lot more uh, impressive than just saying, you know, I'm a, a Harvard-trained lawyer. Nobody cares. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody cares yeah. about your resume. Nobody cares what you've done. They care about why you're doing it. And exactly. That and exactly. The, uh, the applicability or the the potential resonance of that is well beyond the accolades that are easy to write on a page. Yeah. You know what I'm saying?
0: I mean, just going back to Luke Skywalker, if, if they just cut to the point where he's battling, what is it, the battle star, whatever yeah. it is, and you have no backstory, you like ah. He 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 hit cool. it. He he. Yeah, he he's pretty good wow! Whoop de do! Yeah, exactly. But you had to see him on the farm. Exactly. You had to see him battle with the idea of of embracing his destiny. You had to see the path and journey where he was less than sure, less than confident. His pain, his struggle, right? Which then edifies you to know that your pain and struggle is real as well, and it can be overcame. Right. And he tells you his story. It's it, a story has a multitude of pieces. Yeah. And if you pull out any of those pieces, the story will be watered down. Um, but that last story is a mission story. So you have your customer story, your founder story. And that last story is a mission story. The mission story is what you stand for, what the organization is seeking to create in the world. Um, the flag you're planting, why you exist. Because in today's day and age, that's becoming even more of an important story, purpose-driven marketing is is on the tip and tongues of most marketers now and branders because the younger the audience, the more in tune they are to what you stand for beyond the utility of your product or service, Mm -hmm. like no other time in history. So you need to understand your mission story. So those three stories are kind of, if you think about it 360 degrees, it's past, present, and future. The past is your founder story. The present is your customer story. And the future is your mission story. So no matter what seats you're filling, you should have all three of those stories
1: being able to communicate to your audience. And um, talk about the length of these stories. Cause I mean, you're speaking my language here. Um, I'd like to get tactical on these stories on how maybe we can kind of brainstorm what, you know, what a, what a customer story or a founder or mission story is for somebody in an, in, in an ethics department or something. And then how long should those stories be? And then how can we start incorporating them or, when do you use that on, on seasoning? What dishes do you season with yeah. these stories?
0: Yeah. Those are interesting questions. And there are,
1: and this isn't a cop out,
0: but there just isn't a hard and fast, always true answer. Sure. It's, you Sometimes you only have a minute to share it and you got to kill it. Sometimes you have 45 minutes to feel in your presentation okay. and you need to kill it. You just have to understand how much time you have and you need to tell a story and make it as short as possible. But there is no like like it has to be this way. Right. Um, like we have our five-second story, our 30-second story, and our minute story if we want to really get through something and introducing yourself. But but the gist of it is, especially I, I, let me be more specific in the compliance space. We usually have a lot of data yep. backing up what 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 we're talking about or what we bring to the table. Data is 20% of the equation. You need to create data stories. Yeah. The data points to this and why is this important and a story has four parts i simplify it down to four parts there are some problems that cause pain you got to be able to speak to that pain not for you but for the organization or your customer whoever's in front of you and that pain they're locked into it because they don't understand the paradigm the second p that's keeping them stuck Mm -hmm. so 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 Give me a, a data point that a, a typical compliance or risk um, person might be bringing to the table to, you know, move something in an organization. You know, like, uh, just give me
1: there was, uh, you know, there was, uh, we've detected uh, rampant fraud in the Western division.
0: All right. Rampant fraud. Somebody will say, who cares? You know, we were profitable next quarter, move on, fix it, move on. So you might say, Hey, here's the data pointing to that, but here's the problem. If we don't address this, It has the ability to scale to the east, the west, and the north, which will then decrease our long-term profitability and will impact everybody's bottom line. That's the problem turned into pain. I got your attention. Now you need to attack the paradigm, which is the old way of thinking that is keeping people stuck and not wanting to take action. The reason that we haven't been fixing this is because we've been able to hide it and da-da-da-da-da. But that's a mistake. If If we fix it, Here's what we can expect to do or get from it, right? Mm-hmm. The paradigm shift. And the third part is, are the power steps. So there's problem, pain, paradigm, then power. What do we need to do? Be explicit. We need to do, we need to hire a new manager, put in the system and do this. Awesome. And this is what it will give us pleasure, the last P. Mm-hmm. It's going to impact this, this, and this, which is important because of this. And that has some extrinsic value to the person you're talking to, but you need to understand the intrinsic value that's important to your audience. So let's say you're speaking to the CTO and um, their claim to fame is a turnaround they did at the other, at at another company. Mm -hmm. And that makes them feel like a worthy leader. All right. I understand that about you because I got into your shoes. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to tell a story to you. The customer story, one key point is the key word in customer story is custom.
1: Mm.
0: We want To be able to say one story all the time it doesn't work that way whoever's in front of you you need to customize the story to fit them yeah because who is the hero in their story them right so so i know that he was a turnaround specialist and he takes pride in turning things around well we're going to nail these things and what that's going to mean is you would have been able to turn around a whole nother division in record time right so what do you want to do
1: right done
0: Look, what do you want to do? Yeah,
1: oh, let's do it. Record time. Turn around. Yeah. You're speaking right? my language. That sounds like uh, yeah. my department. Exactly. Um, yeah, but again, just having this, um, having this intentionality behind these interactions. And to your point, you can get the bones of a customer story and the bones of a founder story and the bones of a mission story. I mean, we, we, I personally use these stories, when I'm onboarding somebody to our team or when I'm talking to a potential client or whatever, to again <laughs> convey what's the core of our our organization, what's the heart of our organization? That ethos overlap, which many of us, especially in the business world, bizarrely seem to like overstep because we're it's all number it's all ones and zeros and numbers and objective and you know, be professional and all that kind of stuff. Well, we're human beings talking to each other. It's like it's the language of our communication, a language of our connection are through stories and through this sort of ethos overlap. Spending a little bit of time developing, you know, the bones of these types of stories and having some kind of empathy when you're talking to the CTO or the CFO or the CEO or whatever with respect to their background can allow you to create, you know, to kind of put some flesh around those skeletons of stories that you've built so that it resonates more with those individual audiences. Like that's how change is driven. I don't think anyone has ever bought a car from just looking at the, you know, the sticker on the side and no one has ever mm. gotten more budget from a slide, you know, a slide deck from sl- s- sending around a slide deck. That's why you have to describe the numbers on the page and you have to, you have to tell the story and to your point, flesh out the things that are, you know, maybe obvious to you because you're swimming in that, in that pool so much, you, you, you have to frame that out from their perspective for it to even potentially be resonant with them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: data, you know, facts, facts don't move people. Feelings do. That's right. So, so you, you ask your, yourself the question, what, do the, what does my audience feel or what do I want them to feel? Um, and that allows you to tell far better stories, especially if you're very left brain analytical, you're in this space and you have a proclivity to lean on those things. Take a moment and step back and say, what do I want people to feel about this cold data? Right. I just had to step along. What do I want them to feel about it? And somebody who was really like, I don't want them to feel nothing. It's, it's clear as day. The data says it. Okay, great, great, great. What do you want them to feel? Mm-hmm. And I keep asking that question and they get frustrated. And It's like, it's clear as day. It's clear as day. What do you want them to feel? And then they get animated. And I'm like, well, how do you feel right now? That's it. I'm frustrated. Exactly. I'm frustrated because this, this, this is me. Ma- so how do you help them to feel frustrated? Right. Like like we all have feelings like we totally. all do and we are driven by them. Right. It's it's it, the, the status quo was to is to keep things as is. Yeah. The way to invoke action is to create enough emotion to overcome the complacency of keeping things the same. Yeah. And if you don't create that, nothing changes. Change is hard. So there needs to be an emotional impulse to even to want to consider
1: it. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so yeah.
1: yeah, facts don't sell. Yeah, Feelings we, do. We say uh, logic makes you think, but emotion makes you act. And you need enough logic yeah. in the pot so that somebody's not just, uh, so that there's some staying power uh, yeah. to the emotion. It obviously has to be you know justified if you want to have a true change, of course. But you know, if if we're talking 80-20, I'm just saying in general, uh I see people leaning 80% on the data and I think you should be leaning 80% on the story, 80% on the yeah. emotional piece, because that's, that's what's going to resonate with people. And again, the CEO or the board of directors that, you know, you're so nervous to go and tell, you know, do your presentation to those people are going home and watching Netflix with their spouses. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like they're reading novels, they're yeah. reading books, like everyone, everybody is wired this way. It's just such a, uh, it's such a powerful tool for, for people to pick up. And you know, I guess at some level, man, we're just talking about kind of weaponizing humanity at some point and bringing some of this, you know, humanism into our workplaces, which for some reason has almost been like taught out of us in our grad school and our, you know, our undergrad and all these courses and things we take. It's almost like you you have to be the sterilized version of yourself. And I think that that's a fallacy. I think getting yeah. back to the humanity, and of course, of course I'm not saying be, be unprofessional and stuff, but getting back to the the, the the humanity and pushing a little bit more of that into the e- equation, just 10x is the opportunity for you to have an authentic connection with somebody, to authentically convey some some emotion that might resonate with them. That. Makes your presentation into a story that they're actually going to remember and talk about later. These are all opportunities that are right there for us. But to your point, we have to overcome the inertia of status quo because it's just going to kill us and we're just going to keep kind of floating along and seeing where the winds of fate take us. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it comes back down to our
0: priorities too. I mm-hmm. think a lot of times we can pigeonhole ourselves into the idea that that's not necessary mm-hmm. and into the idea that. Okay, I'm not good at telling stories. I'm not that type of person. I'm not charismatic, or you know, I don't have a story to share. And I and I tell people you can just back up from that story. By the way, yeah,
1: that's it. for just a second, exactly.
0: For just a second, and and stop focusing on what you have been or what you can or can't do, and ask yourself, what is my goal? Right. What is my goal? And and we get back to what we talked about before. Just like with the baby, is the goal of pulling yourself up and seeing what's on top of that table worth taking a chance and trying something different? Right. If it's not, you won't. You won't. You'll stick with that old story. Mm-hmm. But let's say I am driven to make an impact and I really need this chain to shift the organization because it impacts thousands of people mm-hmm. who, are, who are in this company. Mm-hmm. And you got to think about it that way. I'm going to battle or war, if you will, for the things that are important to me right and it has purpose okay i'm i'm being loyal to that how do i make sure to the best of my ability that this change or shift or idea gets accepted right now we're playing a different game not preferences but we're Mm purpose-driven and that will allow us to start playing with doing things a little bit differently than we've been used to
1: yeah um this this thing of being purpose driven, or something you said earlier, really, uh, really stuck with me. Where you you were saying this is not about like not having any fear, and I didn't know that you were uh, a fighter, but I always use this this story of uh, there's this fighter Daniel Cerrone. He's like one of the most famous ones in the UFC. He's like had the most fights, and you see this guy and he's walking out to the cage and he's like, you're like, wow, that's a man, like. Look at, he has got ice cold, you know, there's ice cold water in his veins, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I, I've seen an interview with him uh, and he's like, oh man, I am a freaking wreck before a fight. I am terrified. Yeah. I can't sleep. I'm, you know, I'm walking out, you know, I'm throwing up all day, leading up to the fight. And this guy's had like 40 fights, 40, prof- you know, 40 or 50 professional fights. It's crazy. But what a powerful thing to say like, okay, well, guess what? Those feelings are always going to be there. And this person who has clearly conquered them at some level, you know, or you think they've conquered them they're still dealing with it. So it's not about doing something in the absence of fear. It's doing something in the presence of fear, but having a way to work through it or having a way to, you know, get some dexterity around it and do something with it and not let that cripple you and prevent you from achieving that purpose or achieving that thing that, that you're running after, you know?
0: Yeah. 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 We look at the exterior and we judge it as if that is the complete truth. Exactly. When we already know it's not because we're showing up in our life, presenting a a part of us, knowing that there is so much more to the story. Um, And, and, and I'll share my fight story, my first fight story. And here's a, here's a perfect story around the idea of why facts don't matter Mm -hmm. and feelings do. I was, I was in front of a client. I was trying to close this six figure deal, you know, being a business owner, sometimes you get in a position where this is a make or break deal. Totally. I like, like my baby ain't gonna get you know, her shoes next week. If we don't get this beans next month, sweetie. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So I got to get this done and everything is going good. All the facts line up where, you know, and we get to the point of signing the contract and she's like, Oh, well, I don't know. And she's starting to show all these cold feet. And I'm starting to freak out inside. Like, Oh my God, I just knew I was going to get this. Totally. And I'm like, like, she's like, well, let's think about, let's put pause. I'll get back to you. I was like, wait a minute. All right. If I leave right now, this deal is not going to be closed. I said, let me share a story with you you know, when my brother died, I vowed to conquer all my fears. And one of the fears I have was fighting, right? And uh, so a physical violence. So I jumped and became a professional fighter. And my first fight, I remember to this day, it was illegal in 48 states. We fought on Native uh, American uh, land because in Nevada, because it was still illegal everywhere. I, I go to the ring and man, it's is blaring and, and, and loud and people are throwing popcorn and beer cans yeah. and the fighter, the announcer's like, are you ready for a no holes bar fighting contest? And I'm walking to the ring. I'm nervous, Nick. Like I'm, I'm shitting bricks. Yeah. Like, like, like I couldn't sleep three weeks before. Like you said, I was throwing up just before yeah. I get to the ring and, and I look and there's blood on the mat. They close the door before me. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm doing? about to die. <laughs> what am I doing? Exactly. Like I, you know, this pretty face does not belong uh, exactly. in the ring. I'm way too handsome my for Ivy this. league degree and businesses. Like, what am I doing? Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm in the ring and my opponent is crazy pacing the ring, yelling, I'm going to kill you.
1: Foaming at the mouth. And yeah.
0: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> literally. And and I'm like, Oh my God, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. But I got to put on the strong face, you know. Totally. I yelled back, "I'm gonna kill you!" But <laughs> inside, I was like shook. Yeah, yeah. The bell rings, and we get to it, and it's like being thrust into the moment that mm-hmm. you are not prepared for, and something showed up that I know was there. Mm-hmm. And we're going to battle, and I'm, I'm I'm holding my own, but eventually, I find myself on the ground, and I'm more tired than I ever been in my life, yeah. and I'm ready to quit, and it's not going well. And I hear my coach say, remember what you're fighting for. Wow. He doesn't even remember telling me that. I got chills. Yeah. To this day, I heard it clear as day. I turned it around. I was able to get back to my feet and I was able to knock him out nice. and win that fight. And I said, you know why I won that fight to the, my, the prospect? Because I remember what I was fighting for. It was for my wife. It was for my kids. It was for my brothers, for all the things that matter to me. It doesn't sound like you know what you're fighting for powerful and 30 seconds later she signed
1: it's amazing story
0: they had nothing to do with the services that i was going to provide had nothing to do with the facts or what was going to be delivered
1: the story allowed
0: her to let go and to trust that i was going to be a worthy guide in her right. journey to becoming a hero in her life um and that's the power of story.
1: Yeah, many times when you're at that moment and they're not ready to pick the pen up to your point, it's not cuz you haven't presented enough facts, it's not cuz you haven't shown yep. them enough data. It's not you know what I'm saying, it's not cuz you haven't <laughs> shown them that hey, I've really done my my due diligence. You just didn't strike the the emotional chord with them. But that right. but that allowed the uh you know, do you remember in um in uh, Lethal Weapon 2 or maybe it was 3? the one with Samuel L Jackson where there was the thing in the in one of the schools the bomb there and like the bomb is two liquids and they have to mix
0: they have uh-huh. to mix
1: to be combustible right like you need to get that mixture and if you're just all in that logic piece which is where she must have been prior to you telling her that story you know you telling her that story allowed the red explosive liquid to mix in and now now you know now you got some magic there but i mean we just yeah. lean so far away from it cuz it cuz there you know what business do i have talking about this totally unrelated thing well you can always hook it in i mean you hooked it yeah. in with that last line well you don't know what 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 you're fighting for and guess what we're all fighting a battle everyone's fighting the battle of their lives you know what i'm saying so there's so many opportunities to get creative and pull in this personal piece And in a story, there's just so much information conveyed, like so much about you is conveyed in that you didn't have to say, well, I'm really this kind of person. Well, you just saw, you know, show, don't tell type of thing. You just showed her Mm -hmm. in her mind's eye, the type of person you were, because you showed her how you overcame those fears and how fighting for something and having a clear picture of that is such a critical, you know, fuel to achieve your goals. It's just a reframe. It's just this little subtle move that allows to bring, uh, allows you to bring, bring some humanity and step out of this this, uh, this ether that, that we're many times floating in when we're trying to make a decision, it can bring us back down, down to the ground. And so we can stand on our human feet. You know what I mean?
0: Right, right, right. No, no. Perfectly well said. I, I I'm, I'm going to use the mixture story. I like that one. Um, yeah, it, it, I tell you what's on the line is impact.
1: That's right. So, 100% right. so
0: if, if you want that thing to detonate and have impact, these are the components that mm-hmm. strengthen your, your, your hand. Um, and every single one of us can improve in being able to tell stories to get that right mixture. Um, but thinking you're going to show up the day of and just figure it out is probably the biggest mistake. Totally. So give yourself some time to develop those stories and to have them in your back pocket. And just like we were talking about before, the more you practice drill, and rehearse those stories those three in particular, customer, uh, founder, and mission, you'll start to now learn how to subtly change certain exactly. parts to customize them for the exactly. person or, or uh, scenario that you're in. But for the time being, just put pen to pad, sit down. Um, we actually have some free resources on storytelling, Like, but it simply is, what is the problem and pain of my audience? What do they think that is keeping them trapped, the paradigm? And how do you unlock that? What power steps do they need to take to solve that problem? And then what do they get? Pleasure. And those are the four components to being able to tell the story and wrapping your data or whatever it is you're trying to present into a nice neat package. I'll tell people all the time, it's okay to have a healthy snack, but it's far better if you want them to eat it, to put it in a Snickers wrapper. And, and that's, that's just, that just is what it is. Right. You can keep the substance there. It doesn't change the substance of your argument or what you're trying to do, but now you're making it more palatable,
1: mm-hmm.
0: more edible and digestible by putting it into this packaging called the story.
1: Right. Well, I love it, man. I love it. I love your work. I, uh, I've learned just so much from you. I'm so happy that you came on today. Where can people find some more about you?
0: Yeah, yeah. Go to hassanix.com. H-A-S-A-N-I-X.com. H-A-S-A-N-I-X.com. Um, And we have our X Factor community where each week I'm sending out some type of insider information, um, training, private things, exclusive offers. Uh, As I travel, I have meetups and things of that nature safely. Um, But that number, if you text me, you'll get onto that list, 800-425-2095. So if you text me, you'll be inserted into that list. And each week you hear from me. VR private text community,
1: and you know, if I can just speak into the lives of uh, our listeners, the this is the kind of uh, insight you know, follow X, um, join his community. These are the types of insights that are going to cause you to truly elevate. Odds are, you're pretty good to go with regulations. You're pretty good to go with writing a policy. Those are those are the things that you're really good at. Rounding out um, some of these things that are going to help you communicate better. Is going to allow you to finally grab a hold of that impact that is your potential and that is your duty to produce. Like it's your duty, you are uniquely positioned to uh, make the impact that you envision in your mind, but you're scared to speak out into the world. And this can really be the bridge across the uh, the chasm of fear to that to that grown folks table, as we've been saying. So yeah, thank for you, sure. thank you so much, man. Great to have you on. And until next time. a good one, man.